As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. What does he ascended mean, except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers, to prepare God's people for works of service, so that the body of Christ may be built up, until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves, and blown here and there by every wind of teaching, and by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. This is the word of the Lord. Can I have the slides, please? So, we've heard from Ephesians chapter 4 over these last few weeks, and I hope that it's actually started to get inside you to the point where almost you could even maybe say some, of, some parts of it, if not all of it, from memory. There's a lot in these 16 verses that we've looked at over these weeks, and a lot that I hope remains with us that just echoes so many other parts of Scripture. But today, our extended reflection on Ephesians chapter 4 draws to a close. These last few weeks, we've more closely examined what Paul has outlined as a proper exercise regimen for the spiritual fitness of the body of Christ. And as you've heard Christine read, and you've heard it each week specifically, five roles have been isolated as foundational to both our identity and witness as the church. Apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, and teacher. And I just want to take this opportunity to point out to the insert, the trifold insert that's in your bulletin that summarizes much of what we've looked at over these last few weeks so that you can continue to reflect on it or perhaps if you missed and haven't had a chance to go back to understand some of the things that we've looked at. These, these five roles, Jesus was perfect. He was the epitome of all five of these roles. And together, these five functions shape the body's calling, you heard Christine read it, but it's repeated several times in this letter to the Ephesians. These five functions shape the body's calling to grow into the fullness of Christ. Like five fingers on one hand. These ministries are diverse and yet interrelated. They're distinct, yet they're inseparable. And as disciples, and all of us, that means all of us, as disciples, we are expected and empowered to grow both individually into these five roles, but also collectively into all five of these roles, to grow as a part of the body of Christ and as the body of Christ into all five of these roles. And that's why we've been intentional these last few weeks in defining and exploring each one of these functions of the body one by one. When all five of these functions are present, 
The church operates at peak performance. When all five of these roles are accounted for, understood, embraced, submitted to in the life of a believer, a follower of Christ, one is, is a healthy Christian, a Christian operating at peak performance. So today what we're going to try to do is put this all together to appreciate what the body of Christ looks like when it's healthy and vibrant. So in a way, it's kind of showing how all this fits together. And we're going to do this in three different ways. The first is through a simple analogy, building a house. I want you to think about what's entailed from start to finish with building a house. Picture that in your mind. Maybe the picture that's on the screen helps you. And now I want you to appreciate how all five of these roles come together. They have a distinct purpose, yet they're interrelated in the, in the, in the building of a house. When we build a house, there has to be a question of where it's built and what it will look like. And apostles, apostles will have the vision for where to build and what kind of house to build. They will have a vision for where that house should be, but also what that house should look like. If maybe perhaps it's different than any other house that's been built before. And remember with apostles being entrepreneurs, being pioneers, trailblazers, that when it comes to building a house, they can, they can be leaders, um, trailblazers in building that house in one of two ways. There are apostles who can look in, in the, the very territory in which we already occupy, within the boundaries of where we already live, and they can see in places that we are, consider as being forsaken or invaluable or neglected and can say, this would be a great place to build a house. And we'd go, why would anyone want to build a house there? So again, that, that building of a house can come in places that we already know, but apostles also have that ability to go outside the bounds of what we know, and they may call us to a place that we've never even discovered before, a country, a location, and say, this would be a great place to build a house. But it's not just about the, the vision of where to build and what kind of house to build. There's also much more need in building a house as we know. And prophets are the ones in the building of a house that have that sense from the Lord of the significance of what the house is for. And what God may even be doing through the process of creating, of building that house. Sometimes we can just build things to build things. Sometimes we can get so caught up in the project, we forget, why are we doing this? Sometimes when we're building, and especially when we talk about building a house, things don't go according to plan. Can anyone relate to that? It's supposed to be done on this date, and it's not done on that date. There are things that come that are unexpected. Prophets are the ones who, in the midst of that, because those kind of things, when that happens, the unexpected, things take longer, we can lose sight of why we're building in the first place, or we can be tempted to give up. Prophets have that ability to keep us grounded in terms of the significance of what the house is for. When we forget... They say, through the Lord, this is what the house is for. This is why this house in this place at this time is being built. They're the ones when we're tempted to give up, remind us that God is working through the process of creating the house, that the delays, the distractions are not a sign that the house won't get finished, but are a part of the process of what God is doing. But there's also evangelists. Evangelists are vital to building a house because as a house is being built, evangelists fall in love with the vision of the house. When we build a house, sometimes we can kind of look at it in terms of steps. We can kind of think uh, of, uh, you know, all the different stages in the building of the house. But the evangelist so falls in love with the vision of the house that immediately the evangelist desires to connect others to this house, even before it's built, even as it's being built. So where we look at things in stages, tasks to be performed, evangelists have this ability to shape it as a story. 
They see the story not just when the house is finished, but from the beginnings of how this house was, you know, where the apostle first came in to the things that have taken place all along the way. The evangelist has this ability to wrap it together into a story, thereby making that house distinctive, to create an appeal to that house. A lot of times we build track housing or we build houses that are like each other. The evangelist says, no, this house is like any other. Because they know the story behind that house. In fact, evangelists are so in love with the house, they understand the distinctiveness, the the narrative behind the building, that they can't imagine others wouldn't want an opportunity to buy and live in this house. And so they talk it up. They envision it in a way that's different than any other construction project. And that's vital. Because again, if something's built but it's not occupied, if it's not utilized, it's not meeting the purpose that it was intended for. An empty house Serves no, serves no one. Evangelists make sure that the house is filled. But then there are pastors. Pastors in the building of a house make sure that all along from start to finish that those who live in the house will actually be cared for. Sometimes we can have a great design or a great idea to build or we can get really cool with some of the things that we build, but it's not livable. It's not functional. It's not actually a house. It looks nice from the outside, but practically, can you live in it? Is it? Can you grow in this house? And pastors are very, very sensitive to the house is only as valuable as, it, as the people living inside it. And does it enable for there to be life and people to actually live inside of it? And then there are teachers. And you can probably guess the role of the teachers. The teachers are the ones who have the blueprints. The blueprints is the house is being built who make sure that the house is built according to specifications that every last detail is accounted for, that in the midst of innovation or something new, that there are just foundational practices to building a house that are being followed, that no corners are cut. When there's a temptation to cut corners, the teachers are the ones who say, wait a second, in the midst of this, it matters how the house is built. Teachers don't just, again, have knowledge. They also will provide the wisdom of saying, part of the experience of this house for those who will live in it is appreciating the craftsmanship, what went into building it, knowing how it was built and that it was built right. And so it's important that you know this house that you're occupying. And so teachers in that way hold up not only knowledge about how to build a house, but the wisdom of knowing the ins and outs of your house and building it right, building it on the right foundation, building it in the right way. That's an analogy of a way to see how these roles all are needed. Imagine one of those being absent, and that impacts the building project. That's an analogy, but let's talk about a biblical example, a biblical way we can look at these five roles working together. And what I want us to do is I want us to consider how the first followers of Jesus lived according to this fivefold design. Think about the story of Acts. And if you haven't read it, I'll give you a quick overview. We're looking at the life of Paul and the communities he worked with, and we're going to see the fivefold ministry in action through the early church's mission to the Gentiles. And that's going to be a biblical example of how this works. And I want you to pay close attention. I'm going to move pretty fast. And notice how these five roles intersect and, again, complement each other. And it starts with Paul. Paul's base ministry is an apostle. Now, it's interesting because one thing I want to just briefly point out is that if you know anything about Paul, he probably would have said early on in his life that his base ministry was that he was a teacher. In fact, we know from what he wrote to the Philippians in chapter 3 that that's how he saw his life. His base ministry was he was a teacher of the law. But isn't it interesting that when he encountered the living God in Jesus Christ, when he was thrown from his horse, he really discovered what his base ministry was. He thought his life was to be a teacher, but Jesus called him to be an apostle to be a pioneer, a trailblazer, to be an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ spearheading the mission to the Gentiles. 
And the reality is, if you ever have looked at the New Testament, Paul looms large over the New Testament. Acts starts, and all of a sudden, Paul overtakes the whole of that story. The majority of the letters are from Paul. Paul is the apostle who expands the church in this radical way to the Gentiles, to the non-Jews, to those who no one would have anticipated were part of God's covenant promise and kingdom. We're here because of Paul's base ministry being an apostle. We're here because of how God worked through Paul. And yet in the midst of how enraptured I can be about Paul and how we often are, and we look, oftentimes it's like the New Testament is Jesus and Paul, when we actually get into the nitty-gritty of the Bible, Paul was not doing this as a solo effort. Paul worked in partnership with a great team, the body of Christ. He had prophets, people whose base ministry was prophet. Judas and Silas in Acts 15 are specifically pointed to as being prophets sent by the early church with Paul to affirm this mission to the Gentiles, to affirm this new work that God was doing, to encourage it, to show how God was at work amongst the Gentiles, and to show where this was going to lead. Paul was surrounded by evangelists. Philip, for example. Philip's base ministry was evangelism. We're told through scripture, through Acts and other places, he brought the good news to Samaria. He shared the story in Samaria. He shared the story with Ethiopia through an Ethiopian. He shared it finally in the Roman capital of Palestine, Caesarea, as he settled there with his family and was known for sharing the gospel. But we also have Priscilla and Aquila, the husband and wife team, whose base ministry was evangelism. They were tent makers. They were people who evangelized, who told the story of the gospel in the marketplace in Corinth through their business. And then they later went to Ephesus and did the same thing. They actually were instrumental in bringing one of the teachers, someone whose base ministry was teaching, Apollos, to faith. And then we're told they shared the gospel. They went on to continue to share the gospel back in Rome. Paul's mentioned this in his letter to the Romans. So there's this base ministry of evangelism surrounding Paul. But there are also pastors. Barnabas. Barnabas, who we've talked about before, his name means son of encouragement. That's a pastoral name if there ever was one. Barnabas shepherded others in Jerusalem even before Paul came on the scene. He shepherded others because if you don't remember this, when the church was first getting started... Barnabas does something very pastoral, very nurturing, by he sells a field that he owns and brings it to the apostles so that the church can continue to grow. He cares for Paul when he comes into the body of Christ. He vouches for him. He mentors him. He nurtures him. He protects him. And then he shepherds in Antioch, we're told. Barnabas will shepherd the people in Antioch, the Christians that are there. Interesting thing about Antioch. In Acts 11, it says, and Barnabas is the one who's there, that the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. Now, I'm going to read a little bit into the story, but, so I'm going to indulge me a little bit on this. But if you don't know anything about the term Christian, it was not a nice word. It was a derogatory term given to followers of Christ by the Romans. They, they used the word Christian. It was meant to be offensive. It meant, look at the little Christs who were running around. To me, and again, I'm reading into it, but I think that that's a pastoral job, a shepherding job, Barnabas amongst that community, to turn around something that was intended as a slur, something that was intended as an insult, and to engage a community in such a way that they embraced it as their identity. That's pastoral work. That's shepherding right there. And Barnabas, as we know, also shepherds in his mentoring of John Mark. John Mark, who has a little, gets a little, uh, a little um, squirrely in his first missional journey to where Paul basically is done with John Mark, but Barnabas takes him under his wing and cares for him. And Barnabas also shepherds people in Cyprus, as we're told in Scripture. Continual work of shepherding. Along with him, we have a great witness of the pastoral base ministry in James, the brother of Jesus, major leader in the Jerusalem church, pastoring the church in its infancy, pastoring during a very crucial time when Gentiles are being ministered to, and there are some Jews who are going, what is this? 
What's going on here? A great pastoral witness to James is his letter that we have in our Bible. And if you haven't read James in a while, it's got that pastoral mix, right? It's got that Psalm 22 mix of if you read James, on the one hand, it's a letter of guidance with the staff. But if you read James carefully, it's also got the discipline of the rod. You know, James has this way of holding, of encouraging the church, but at the same time holding the church accountable. That's pastoral work. And then teachers. Base ministry of teaching for Apollos. Apollos, who was a Hellenized Jew, who through Priscilla and Aquila, that husband and wife team, converted to Christ. He came from Alexandria in the ancient world that was a center of education and learning. And we're told that when he came to Christ, God used that base ministry as he taught in Ephesus and Corinth. It's actually said that he had this thorough knowledge of the scriptures and he taught boldly in the synagogues. Apollos' base ministry was teaching. And Cephas, Peter, the rock, Peter, his base ministry was teaching. We see it on this day, especially as the Spirit fills him on Pentecost. He was the teacher to the Jewish converts. He had this knack through the Spirit of being able to say, this is that. When people were confused about what's going on, Peter would hold up truth and say, this is what's going on. This is that. This is the fulfillment of what God has always said he was going to, done, going to do. This is Jesus. So what you see, I hope, is Paul was surrounded by a body. And you see these ministries engaged together. And that gets back to, this is how the body is supposed to function normatively. This is the healthy functioning of the body. When there are people operating the whole out of those base ministries and, and pushing each other. But I also said it, it's not just a reflection, these five roles of how we grow corporately. It's also how we grow into the fullness of Christ individually. And I want to show you that also through the life of Paul. There are glimpses in scripture there are other places I could point you to, but if Paul's base ministry was apostle, we also have glimpses of how he went through phases of where he was grown in the other four. We've talked about that. We don't just have a base ministry. Out of our base ministry, God grows us in the other four as well. Paul was an apostle. He was the pioneer to the mission to the Gentiles. But Paul, and there are other places I could point you to, but Paul had a prophetic phase. Paul, in writing to the Romans, and you imagine this was part of a dialogue beyond Rome, of people are starting to wonder as the Gentiles are beginning to embrace the faith in Christ, and yet more and more Jews are not. More and more Jews are separating themselves and not embracing Christianity. There's this ongoing conversation of what happens to Israel? What about Israel? Is Israel forsaken? Is God going to abandon Israel? If Israel doesn't embrace the Messiah, what happens? And Paul, in his letter to the Romans in 9 through 11, gets very, very prophetic in talking about how God is at work amongst Israel now and what God will do with Israel in the future. That's Paul in that prophetic phase. You see Paul as an evangelist in a phase. One that everyone knows that we often point to is Acts 17. When Paul goes to Athens, Mars Hill, and encounters the philosophers and creates, it presents this great sermon. They have this statue to kind of cover their bases to an unknown God, and Paul tells the story and shapes it around their philosophical understanding. But another place where we see Paul in that phase of evangelism is in the first letter we have from him to the Corinthians, where Paul writes. There's this point in the, in the letter where he writes, he's going through an evangelistic phase, and he says, I have become, I've become like one under the law, meaning I'm willing to be, be like one under the law to share the gospel story, to honor the Torah, to, to point to how the Torah points back to Christ. But then in the same breath, in the same sentence, Paul will say, and I have become like one not having the law, meaning I want to share the gospel that I'm willing even to come alongside those who don't know the Torah, who don't have an understanding for that. I'm willing to become what I need to be to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's evangelism. Paul is a pastor. 
A phase ministry for him we see in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 where Paul speaks specifically about how he has tried to shepherd the Thessalonians. And in that one chapter, he talks about the partnering, the direction, the care, the encouragement he's given them and uses these powerful metaphors. He says, I've, been like, I've tried to be like a nursing mother to you. I've tried to be like a brother, like a father. And then Paul is a teacher. Again, in Philippians 3, that's kind of what he thought he was. And we'd see how that teaching thing has been eclipsed by an apostle. But I think a better place to see the phase of Paul as a teacher, that gift coming out, is in First and Second Timothy, those two letters, where Paul will say, I am a teacher to the Gentiles. And Paul did what teachers do. He held up the truth of biblical history and then showed the Gentiles how that applied to their lives, how they were a part of that story. But what's also great about First and Second Timothy is it also shows Paul as a mentor in that teaching phase as he pours into the life of Timothy, one of his protégés. That teaching in a larger scale, but also in a one-on-one -on -one scale. So, three quick examples of how do these things all come together. What does it look like, both from an analogy and also from right there in Scripture, of this is what it looks like in the life of a Christian and in the life of a church. And so that kind of leaves us with where do we go from here? I know many of you have kind of asked, what do we do with this? How do we live as a community in light of this new teaching? And I know that for many of you, you may be tempted to think or may be tempted to want that the answer is, well, great, we have this now. How many of you have taken the inventory? Raise your hand if you've taken the inventory. You know what I'm talking about. You've kind of figured out what your base ministry is. Raise your hand. And great, we're going to categorize you all now, put you in the database, and then we'll separate you appropriately. That would be typical, what would be, what would be expected. And so, you know, when we realize this is an apostle time, we'll call on the apostles. When we need prophets, we'll call on prophets. But that is not what we're going to do because that is not in the spirit of what Paul has given us these last few weeks in chapter four. If you've taken the inventory, and if you haven't, that kind of helps you to figure out what your base ministry is, it's just the starting point. What we've done is the starting point, not just the inventory, but this series, it's the tipping point for a deeper reflection and a larger conversation. To address this, when, you, when we enter into a church, most of us, when we enter into any community, when we come to some place that we're going to be a part of, one of the most, the first questions we ask is, where do I fit? If we're going to be a part of something, where do I fit? And a part of a church will say, or a community, what can I contribute? What can I contribute? What can I receive? If I'm going to be here, what can I contribute and what can I receive? Now, what I want to say to you is, stereotypically, we tend to answer those foundational questions, what can I contribute and what can I receive, based on our desires, based upon our wants. So we'll say, well, what do I want to contribute? What do I want to give to this community? And then from receiving, what do I want to receive from this community? And that's very, very worldly. That's very, very self-centered. Right, wrong, or indifferent. That's what, it's basically what's in it for me. The five roles give us the opportunity to instead think about answering these questions, not from our desires and our wants, but they give us the means to answer these questions from our calling, from our need. Think about asking and answering those two questions. What can I contribute and what can I receive? Think about answering them differently in light of the five roles. Before I even exp exp ex talk about what that might look like, let me give you another example of where this might help a major sort of st stumbling block in the church. And it's a word. And that word is stewardship. Now, if you've been in the church around, around the church for a while, you know stewardship means money. 
And you know when they say stewardship, that means you need to disappear for a couple of weeks until stewardship season is over. <laughs> now, maybe if you've been in the church a while, you actually know that stewardship, typically as it's used in the church, doesn't just mean money. You know it's about the unholy three, time, talent, and treasure. And so when you hear stewardship, you think, oh, okay, here's the appeal for my time, for my talent, and for my treasure. But maybe, maybe just like the spiritual gifts, Remember when we talked about the spiritual gifts and we said the spiritual gifts by themselves are inherently dangerous? Remember me with a hammer? You, know, you can just pick up a tool. It doesn't mean you should use it. How the spiritual gifts are given shape through these roles. What if time, talent, and treasure are also tools that are best put to use through these defined roles? What if all of a sudden we think about the call to give our time and our talent and our treasure through these roles rather than apart from them? Apart from them, this is how it typically works in the church. I start to talk about stewardship and I say, God wants your time, God wants your talent, God wants your treasure, right? And this is what will typically happen. We will do it out of obligation. I will guilt you. Well, God is so gracious, he gives me everything. I could at least give him something. And then most of us will pick one out of three. And we'll try to make ourselves feel good about it. Well, I really don't have a lot of treasure, so I'll give my time. Well, I really don't have a lot of time, so I'll give my treasure. Well, I don't really have a lot of time or treasure, so I'll give my talent every now and again. And this gets back to several weeks ago where we think we're giving to the kingdom because we're helping to pass out bulletins or we're, we're, we're preparing the donuts and the coffee. That's not for Jesus. That's for us. Time, talent, and treasure, what if we looked at them not out of obligation, not out of one out of three, that's us doing the best that we can, and that is the best that we can do apart from God. But what if instead we started to view our role in the church, what we can contribute and what we can receive out of these five roles? We've talked a lot about that our true identity is children of our Father and that the key to, be, to living life as Jesus intended is to live in dependence upon our Father, to live out of our identity being dependent upon our Father. That sounds great intellectually, but the five roles give us the ability to practically do that because then the, God, the Father has given us these five roles by which we can live out of our identity and which we can live dependent upon our Father. What I mean is, is instead of asking yourself, Instead of asking yourself, what do I have to give and what do I have to receive out of time, talent, and treasure, what if you didn't start there? What if we started with, I'm an apostle, that's my base ministry. What can I offer the community out of that? Where can I bring my entrepreneurial spirit that God's given me? Where can I help point to unrealized resources, un, un, untapped possibilities? Where can I voice that, point to that, lead others to that? What if I realized that my base ministry is a prophet and in, I said, how can I offer the words that God gives me, the visions and images that God offers to me, that the encouragement, the, I have this deep prayer life, how can I offer that to the community? What if I realize I'm an evangelist, I'm a storyteller, I love to talk about stories and about how God's at work in people's lives and, and, and how can I not only share my own story, but because I'm a lover of stories and I'm good at telling them, how can I come into the community and help collect the stories of the community? Everybody's got a story, but not all of us are comfortable or know how to tell it. But evangelists can be those connectors that can help us to collect those stories and share them on behalf of the community. What if we thought about contributing that way? What if I said my gift is, I'm, I'm, my role is I'm a pastor, that's my base ministry, and how can I provide my presence? How can I be a listening ear? How can I be a person who sends a card, makes a phone call, provides food, or is just willing to sit in a space with people who need it? 
What if I looked at myself in terms of my base ministry and I'm a teacher? How can I not just teach classes, but how can I cultivate wisdom? How can I share from the experience that I'm having with God in my life where I have to cultivate wisdom amongst the community? To practically come alongside people, not just through a class, but maybe I've raised my kids and I can come along someone who's just starting. Maybe I've been married for several years and I can come along a couple that's just getting married. How can I use my base ministry as a teacher to mentor others, to come alongside them? How radically would our life change if we thought started there and then out of answering that question, that's how we gave our time, our talent, and our treasure? And what if we received from that same place, from that same calling? If instead of what do we want to receive, what do we need to receive? If I know what my base ministry is, if I know how I'm wired, what other roles in this church do I need to gravitate towards so I stay healthy and balanced in the role that God's given me? I don't just want to hang out with the other apostles. I need prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers to keep me maturing, balanced. What if I realize I'm going through a phase ministry? Meaning right now God's really growing me in a prophetic way, in a prophetic role, but I'm not comfortable with that. I've never had this experience where I'm having visions where all of a sudden God's putting words on my heart and I don't know how to deal with it. I'm tempted to run from it, but instead I want to receive from people who prophecy as their base ministry and they can help me as God is growing me in this role. What would change if we not only looked at what we could contribute, but what we could receive came out of these five roles? You know, one of the, the uh, passages that often gets lifted up during stewardship time is Acts 2. You know this passage, right? Right after Pentecost, it's this beautiful passage that says, and they were all together eating and drinking and praying and sharing and giving to each other as they had need. And it gets held up at stewardship time when we make the appeal for your time, your talent, and your treasure. This is what God wants. This is the picture, people. This is what we should be. And I have yet to see a church that comes close. And what that becomes is sort of the, the guilt trip of, well, gosh, we've got to at least try, so I'll give one out of the three. Or we just basically start to say stuff like, well, that was just a unusual thing. That was like when the Spirit first came, but now it's kind of died down a little bit, so that doesn't happen anymore. But what if what's behind that picture is a community that didn't all come together and go, well, we all got to give something. What do you got? Well, I got time, but I don't got talent. But instead, they came together out of this awareness of their identity, awareness of how they were being grown into the fullness of Christ, and out of embracing their identity, all of those things happened not from them making it happen, but from God making it happen through their submission both to him and to each other. Beloved, what I'm trying to say to you is, this is the key to where we can stop existing as a community in a transactional way, but instead can actually relate to one another. And when we are aware and we start talking and speaking to each other out of an awareness of these roles, what will happen is our community will become dynamic. It will become joyful and catalytic. Can you imagine the next time we experience change? Can you imagine? I hope you can. It's going to be awkward because we don't do this. Can you imagine when we have conflict instead of immediately drawing lines, if instead we could look at each other in terms of these roles? And I could understand the reason why I'm having such a difficulty right now with you is because you are more of a pastor. You're more of a developer and a settler. And I'm an apostle and I want to go. And it's not that I'm just trying to tear down the church and it's not that you're just lagging behind and don't want to change. It's that we're wired differently. Think about the conversations, how they would change if we looked at each other and spoke to each other through these roles. Many of you think you know each other. 
and you know each other in the ways that the world defines you. How many of you have had conversations and gotten to know each other as you're wired in Christ? Out of this place, these roles, these phases that we're in. This is so important for us in the church. Understanding our own base and these phase ministries we go in, talking this way, engaging, even framing it right now. You know, in the midst of someone kind of sharing you what God's doing, going, saying, you know what, I think right now you are going through an evangelistic phase. That's what's taking place. That's why you're struggling. Imagine how that would change, and it needs to change in the church because, beloved, here's the other side of this. Everything that we've studied these past five weeks, six weeks together, this is not just about how we are to live together in the church. This is how we're supposed to live together as ambassadors of the kingdom to the world. We need to look at these roles in understanding our identity in the church first with each other because it's out of our understanding of these roles that we engage the world. How many of you look at your jobs, the places that you work, the college that you're at, the relationships you have with your friends and your family out of these roles? How would those relationships change if you approach them understanding your base ministry in your family, in your community, in your workplace? The key in that one is, is that one's going to be less explicit. It's going to be more subtle because many people there may not have the same language. But it doesn't matter the language they have. It matters if you understand your calling of where God has placed you and why. How does knowing you're an apostle shape how you do your job differently? How does knowing you're an evangelist shape how you engage a fam your family differently? And how does it engage, knowing who, being able to tell who others are, whether they realize it or not, how you engage them? This is what living in the kingdom looks like. This is how we don't have to have a separation anymore between our church life and our life in the world. We live out of this work that God is doing in our lives in the places that God has called us. Beloved, believing in Jesus means following Jesus, entrusting our lives to him, not just when we die, but with each day we are blessed to take another breath and engage this world. Do you think these roles don't apply to everywhere else you are outside the church? Do you think the creator of the universe, do you think that Jesus Christ, the living God, has nothing to say outside of this gathering? It doesn't have wisdom, doesn't have an ability, doesn't want to exercise his authority and power through you in those places? We often act as though that's the case. But we've not been called together in Christ just to come to a pew on Sunday and otherwise remain inactive. Christianity is not a spectator sport. It's a full contact faith. No one sits on the bench in the kingdom. We all get to play and we're all expected to contribute. And you know what? When every time a pastor says this, everyone thinks that this means you have to go out into the world and you have to be loud and proud about your faith in Christ. You all of a sudden got to start hitting people over the head with a Bible or shoving a cross down their throat or turning up Christian radio extra loud. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is instead of trying to be so external, what if internally we became more reflective and began to understand by, again, praying, opening ourselves up to God. God, show me my life differently. Show me how the places you've called me, the relationships I'm in, not the way the world defines it, but the way you define how you're growing and shaping me. And then if we do that, trust that out of that will come our witness. Out of that will come something compelling. Out of that will become something that people will be drawn to and attracted to. Because if we submit to Christ and live out of these five roles, what is the fruit of the Spirit? Unconditional love, persistent hope, unmerited generosity, unwavering faith. These are things that are attractive in the world. 
and they are attractive without having to stamp the label Jesus on them. That can come later. Beloved, being a Christian out in the world doesn't mean we have to have an offensive or a defensive posture. When we live out of these five roles, it's about a posture of embrace. What's so awesome about this teaching and why it is also so hard is because you know what it forces us to do? To live in dependency upon Jesus. And that's what I want to close with. That's what's so significant about to the day that we're ending on. Because in the midst of this whole series, and I've had conversations with some of you, and some of you are already starting to do it, we've gotten this information, we've gotten this teaching, and, and many of us think it's radical and cool and like it. Others of us, not sure yet. But one thing that's consistent is all of us want to grab it and control it. All of us want to go, great, now I know what I am, this is what I'm going to do, and now I know what you are, this is what I'm going to, how I'm going to, it's not about, hear that, stop. We are not in control. It's not about our vision. It's not about our strength and our resources. That's why ending today is so important because today is Pentecost. Today is the birthday of the church. Today is the day that we remember that we came into existence. We are not self-made Christians. Even you coming to church this morning, and, I, and you may disagree with me, and that's fine, and we can talk about it later. You didn't bring yourself here this morning. God brought you here. And you can exercise your free will arguments all you want. Give me your life. Give me your story. And I will show you that you are not in control. You are not. We are not. And that is our biggest temptation is we want to be in control, but we're not. And Pentecost reminds us that we're not in control. Two pictures on Pentecost. The first is the picture of 11 ordinary men, just like you and me. Fishermen, a community activist, a government official, several women. And where are they? They're in an upper room, hidden behind closed doors. They don't know what to do. The, what, where do we go from here? What's the vision? Who's going to write the mission statement? And what do they do? They have a meeting. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> they have a meeting. And the meeting gets to the place that they get, in their desperation in the meeting, they roll some dice. Beloved, don't miss the significance of that picture. Because that is the picture of us, apart from the Spirit of God working in our lives. Until we experience and yield to the Spirit, the authority and power of the Spirit, that's what we do. We gather together, we have our titles, we have a meeting, and pretty much whether we actually do it or not, we just roll the dice. Two pictures though, that's one picture, but you know what happens next, that's why we're here. In the best that they can do, suddenly what Jesus said he was going to do happens and the Holy Spirit comes. And these men and women are radically changed. They are literally on fire, exhibiting the kind of muscle, the kind of flexibility, the kind of reach and stamina that we proceed to see in the story of Acts that we can only describe as supernatural. You can only describe it as supernatural. They're bold, they're courageous, they're innovative, they're organized, and they're impactful in a way that the best hearts and minds of the world have not been able to replicate since. And there's a reason for that. Because as brilliant as we are, as endowed as we are by our creator, apart from our creator, we are limited. We do not have the power and authority that's needed to transform this world. But when the spirit comes, when we yield to the spirit, live out of the roles that we have been given, our authority and our power, not for our own sake, but for God's, is unlimited. Beloved, as we celebrate Pentecost, we confess the truth that the Holy Spirit is the true source of our life. 
all of our life, not just in the church, but all of our life. When we celebrate Pentecost, we acknowledge that the Holy Spirit is the only means we have, the only real means we have for living into and out of the authority and power of the kingdom entrusted to us. If you are not experiencing, I've said this before, but I have to say it again, if you're not experiencing the authority and power of the kingdom, if you're coming to church every week, or you come every four weeks or six weeks, and you're like, yeah, I'm just not seeing it, I'm not hearing God, I'm not experiencing it, then get out of yourself. You are in blocking the Holy Spirit who wants to work in you. You are blinding yourself to how this Holy Spirit is already working in your life. You are intellectualizing, emotionalizing all the ways to resist. And what that all comes down to is you are trying to be in control. And you are not. We come together today to rejoice that the person of the Holy Spirit is the gateway to fulfilling our shared destiny. You want to know why you're here? You want to know what you're here for? You don't have to figure that out. We all share the same destiny to glorify and enjoy the love of God and the love that is God forever. We all have the same destiny. It may be different how we get there, but it's love. And who doesn't want that? But we can't control it. Thanks to the letters in our Bible, like the one from Ephesians, we know that this love that we crave, this love that is our destiny, is not an ideal that we can summon up by discipline, hype, or even through being sincere. True divine love is the fruit of a relationship, and it's a relationship expressed through a life shared in the Spirit. Us together sharing in the Spirit. I guess what I'm trying to say is that the end of this sermon series is not the end of our exercise and our workout as the body of Christ. If we take nothing else away from these last few weeks, let it be our understanding that we as a body are intended to grow and mature into the fullness of Christ into eternity. Let us walk away understanding that we've been drawn together drawn past tense passive tense drawn together to be grown together to be embraced, to be empowered, to be equipped to fill the whole universe. It's that big. The whole universe with the love of our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So beloved, let us experience together and exercise such wondrous love, as Paul himself puts it, as each one of us does his or her part through our shared roles as apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Amen? Amen. Amen.